right, Parkview East. Let's finish up those conversations and let's find a seat here. So good to be together opening God's Word. We're going to be in Acts 21 and 22 this morning if you want to go find a seat and open up your copy of God's Word. We love here at East Campus, love having God's Word open. Uh, we, we turn into the posture of learners here, uh, humble learners ready to receive from the Lord what He wants to give to us. And uh, I just want to say grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking at Paul's fourth missionary journey, I guess we could call it that, in Acts 21 to 28. He now has arrived in Jerusalem. And what we're going to notice is Acts 21 and 28 is a succession of five different trials and speeches from Paul defending and declaring who he is as an apostle of Jesus, one who had seen the resurrected Christ, and one who's giving testimony to him of the Lord's work, both among the Gentile nations and also the Jewish people. But one of the threads that Luke, the author of Acts, is going to weave through these chapters, it's one we've actually already seen already, but it's really emphasized in the final chapters of Acts, is the theme of suffering and pain. Paul knows, actually, we know from context in Acts 21, people are warning Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you will suffer. And Paul actually says in Acts 21, he says, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. In fact, Paul knew this about himself. If we went all the way back to Acts 9, here's what the Lord said to Paul. This is right after Paul's conversion to Christ, after the experience in the Damascus Road. And the Lord says, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Here's why this is important. Pain and affliction and suffering and trouble and trial and sorrow will enter into your life as a Christian. And normally our first reaction is, something has gone wrong here. This is not the Lord at work. I want an easy life, a comfortable life, and that's when the Lord is at work. But Acts 21 to 28 especially, what Luke is trying to convince Christians in the first century and therefore Christians of every century, is that suffering in the Lord's hand and in the Lord's design, suffering becomes a pathway to speak about our Savior. Suffering becomes a pathway to speak about our Savior. And today, the particular suffering we will see is the pain of misunderstanding, the pain of being misunderstood, the pain of being falsely accused, the pain of being in a community of people, whether inside the church or outside the church, and people actually don't get you. They don't understand your heart. In fact, what they say about you is contrary to reality. That experience that many of us go through, that's what Paul is entering into as he goes into Jerusalem. And what I want us to understand is this. If God loves us so much, we all believe this here as Christians, if God loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus to suffer for us on the cross, 
in our place, then God loves us so much, he will let us suffer with Jesus for the sake of his name. Both are true. Jesus suffers for us, and as we suffer, Jesus suffers with us. That's one of the things that we will discover as we read this text. Now, this is a long passage, starting in verse 17 of chapter 21, and then all the way to chapter 22, verse 21. And so I want to give a framework real quick. There's three parts. There's three scenes, okay? Scene number one is verses 17 to 26, where Paul is among the Jewish Christian leaders in Jerusalem. Then scene number two, we'll see Paul in the temple among unbelieving Jewish people where he faces false accusation. And then scene three, Paul is at the military barracks, the the prison cell, and he gives a testimony. Those are the three sections to give us framework. It's a longer passage. I don't want you to get lost. And so I'll announce where we're at as as we read along. But let's hear God's word for us from Acts 21, starting in verse 17. Here's scene number one. Paul misunderstood. Paul falsely accused inside the church among the Jewish Christians. When he had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. Verse 18, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders who were present, the leaders. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry and his missionary journeys. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. Very important verse, verse 21. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing and what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. And with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. End of scene one. Now to scene two, Paul in the temple. Verse 27, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on Paul, crying out, men of Israel, help This is the man who's been teaching everyone, very important, everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place, for they have previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohorts, the Roman military cohort, that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him, ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he had came to the, 
had come to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. End of scene two. Now to scene three, Paul in the barracks about to give his testimony. He says to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Verse 38. Are you not the Egyptian then? who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out in the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard he had addressed them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus, in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take also those who were, and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise, go to Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear his voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you've seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had turned, returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing right there approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And Jesus said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we now pray by your Holy Spirit that you'd help us understand, see Jesus, love him, live for him, see that our suffering is not a mistake, but is put there into our life so that we might proclaim Jesus, to speak about our Savior just like Paul did. Help us see Jesus afresh, we pray. Amen. So Acts 21, 22, longer passage in the Bible. But it is here, friends, to encourage us, to remind us, to assure us that when we go through suffering, especially the pain of being misunderstood, the pain of being falsely accused for stuff that we've never did or never said, that pain is actually a pathway for us to 
speak openly, an opportunity for us to speak about Christ. And there are three ways we are to respond to suffering, false accusation that advances the gospel. Three things we see from these three scenes, okay? Scene number one is humility, verses 17 to 26. Scene number two is cruciformity, or Christoformity, being formed by Christ, looking like Christ, verses 27 to 36. And the third is testimony, verses 1 to 17 of chapter 22. First is humility. You and I need to have a willingness to bend and be flexible and submit in areas of a non-essential conviction and opinion and preference in order to serve one another in unity. That's what the first scene is about, humility. Look with me at scene one. Paul is misunderstood. He arrives in Jerusalem. He's giving an explanation of what God is doing among the Gentiles and rescuing them and bringing them into a relationship with Christ. But then the Jewish Christian leaders explain to him, verse 21, very important, first scene. Verse 21, they explain a problem that's been arising, a rumor about Paul. They say, you are teaching Jewish Christians that they need to forsake Moses. This is what they're hearing. Jewish Christians are hearing there's a guy named Paul And in on his missionary journeys, he tells Gentiles one thing, that you don't need to be circumcised in order to become a Christian, have right relationship with God. But then he goes to the Jewish people, and he says, hey, you know what? Forget your Jewish customs. Forsake Moses. Stop circumcising. And forget all the other Jewish customs. In one sense, it sounds like Paul's being accused of being a terrible missionary. We maybe have heard stories of missionaries oftentimes from the West, They go to a different culture and they proclaim Christ faithfully, but they also add on certain things that the the people in that particular culture need to do away with. You're going to be a real Christian, going to be a real follower of Jesus, not only believe in Jesus, but also get rid of this and that and that thing in your culture. Secondary things. Of course, now, we have to clarify, Paul is clear that if people are looking to human religious effort or activity such as circumcision or whatever Jewish customs of the day that people would look to and say, if I do these certain things and behave this certain way, then I can be in right relationship with God. Now, Paul's very clear. The whole Bible's very clear. That is rejected. That's not the gospel. Paul has proclaimed the gospel clearly that it is by God's gracious initiative Received by faith in Jesus alone that a person is saved. What Jesus has done, not what humans do. That's the essential gospel message that Paul confirms and proclaims in every place. But what Paul is being known for or misunderstood is that he's also adding on and saying not only Jesus, but also now you have to do away with these secondary cultural practices. So you'd be a Jewish person there in the first century and hearing this message. And what they're misunderstanding Paul is saying is that it's not only Jesus alone, but then if they get rid of circumcision. Now again, Paul is clear. There is a reason to stop doing circumcision if the reason for the first century Jewish people was for the sake of them being accepted by God by doing this practice. Paul's saying no. But if the Jewish person received Jesus by faith alone, receiving Jesus, but then as a Jewish person, in their culture and custom, they want to continue to circumcise and do other cultural Jewish things, that is, that's acceptable. That's fine, as long as it's not seen as a means of salvation. 
And so Paul is in need here of being flexible, being humble in matters of non-essential importance like circumcision. Paul even says in Galatians 6, circumcision or uncircumcision is nothing, it is not the primary importance, he says, but new creation, a person becoming new in Jesus Christ. That's, that's the main thing. That's the thing we focus on. And these secondary things are matters of opinion or preference based on how a personal believer is trying to live out their faith in Christ in their cultural context. So what does Paul do? Well, Paul, if we remember, is a very powerful man at this time, especially in the church. He has lots of influence. He could use his apostle card and throw an apostolic tantrum and force these Jewish Christians to get rid of all their Jewish customs. Or Paul could have Chosen self-pity. Here are these Jewish Christians saying, hey, we're hearing these things about you. And Paul could have said, this is not who I am. How dare you? And could have gone towards self-pity and how hard he works as a missionary and how difficult it has been to proclaim the gospel and how hurt he is with all these false allegations. And he could have played the self-pity card. But Paul chooses the path of humility. Look at verse 24. The Jewish Christian leaders have a plan. They say, here are four men taking a Nazarite vow a vow basically demonstrating your, your purity before the Lord and dedication to the Lord. It was a Jewish custom, all the way based in Numbers 6 in the Old Testament. There's a book of Numbers called Numbers, chapter 6, talks about the Nazarite vow. So, so they say, so purify yourself along with these Jewish men, pay their expenses, which would have been a quite a financial cost to Paul. And thus all the Jewish Christians, verse 24, will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. Again, not in terms of obeying the law to be saved by Jesus, but as a Jewish man, which Paul is, and we will see this repeated several times in this passage, to demonstrate solidarity with his fellow Jewish Christian brothers and sisters in order, here's the point, in order to maintain unity in the church, in order to maintain unity. He has an act of humble solidarity going alongside these Jewish Christian brothers to express his Jewish heritage. And he's willing to do this in a matter of secondary importance for the sake of maintaining unity because if the Apostle Paul is found to be one who is saying, get rid of all the Jewish customs and be only exactly like me because Paul feels the freedom not to do those things all the time. But if he did that, That would create much dissension and division in the church. And so here is Paul willing to sacrifice his freedom to take the path of humility for the sake of maintaining unity in an area of secondary importance and difference of opinion, depending on one's personal conscience before the Lord as a faithful Christian. Paul summarizes the principle in Galatians 5.13 like this, For you were called to freedom in Christ. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The context here, Paul is emphasizing unity here there in the Galatian church. And here's the first point we must grasp, Parkview Church. That when false accusation comes at us, some sort of misunderstanding by fellow Christians, the temptation is to use our power or our influence or our anger or whatever it is to take the upper hand. Or to play the self-pity card of how hard your life is and how difficult it has been and to turn things back upon yourself. But rather, Paul shows us a different way entirely. Paul shows that unity is maintained through the path of humility, especially when dealing with secondary 
issues of conviction and opinion. What would this look like here at East Campus? We all have unity around gospel core essentials. It's one of the amazing things about the EFCA. We're part of the EFCA denomination. And the EFCA has a doctrinal statement that emphasizes core doctrines that Christians have really believed for thousands and thousands of years. The Trinity, the trustworthiness of Scripture, the person of Jesus Christ, faith alone in Christ for salvation. These are all things that we would celebrate and come around in unity. But also, we have secondary matters of opinion or preference or conviction, political stances that are different from one another in this church, different cultural heritage, different family background, different ministry preferences, different preferences of how worship should look on a Sunday, differences of how we should educate our children and what's best for our children. We're going to disagree on these things, and these things will look different, and we are called, like Paul, to serve our brothers and sisters in love and not let these secondary issues that are important but not primary importance according to the gospel to become reasons to be disunited and to hurt and to speak wrongly against each other. We need to have the humility, yes, to serve, but also to understand one another, to listen to each other. The very thing that Paul didn't receive in Jerusalem, people believing rumors about him, people believing false reports, we in this church at East Campus are to be the sorts of Christians that halt when the gossip monster starts showing its ugly head. Nope, not here. When the false reports or rumors about someone, did you hear that he, he believes this politically? Isn't that crazy? When those sort of things happen, when, you know, when the volume literally is turned down and you start having a hushed tone about someone else in the church, usually an indication, probably what's happening next out of your mouth shouldn't be happening. We need to have the humility to understand one another. And when we see that there are true differences, to not allow those differences to create disunity, but in humility serve one another. That's the first point of what happens when we come together as God's people. But now we move to the sec- second point, the second scene, which is Christo- Christoformity. It's a different word. I heard it used once. I like the word Christo, Christ, formity, formed, formed into the image of Christ. That's what's happening here in the second scene, where Paul now moves away from false accusation, misunderstanding in the church, which is very painful, to, the, to now going to the temple and false accusation and misunderstanding among unbelievers, among the, the Jewish unbelievers there in the temple, verses 27 to 36. And verse 28 is very important. It's, it's, the, it's the rumor or it's the false accusation that people have against Paul. Verse 28, this man is teaching everyone everywhere against the Jewish people, the Jewish law, and the Jewish temple. Moreover, he did something punishable by death by bringing a Gentile into the temple to defile it. Now, of course, Paul never did any of these things because if you look at the next verse, verse 29, it states these Jewish people supposed that Paul brought Trophimus into the temple. They supposed, they actually didn't see it. They supposed that happened because they, well, they saw him with him uh, in the city earlier that day. And well, you know, he, he brought him in. The pain of being the person who's receiving rumors and gossip about yourself for non-Christian coworkers or family members or friends supposing assuming they know who you are. Assuming that because you're a Christian, you are a bigot. 
or you're hate-filled, or you have dangerous ideas about human sexuality or gender, or that you're a legalistic weirdo, or fill in the blank of the things that Christians are commonly known for. Now, we could pause here and say, at times, Christians are deserving of some of the things that we are known for because we have been just totally wrong in how we have approached our unbelieving neighbors. We've lacked gentleness and civility and kindness, and we've promoted truth with anger and volatility and unhelpfulness, and the list could go on. Yes, that is true. But to be honest, as your pastor, knowing so many of these brothers and sisters here, you guys strike me as the sort of non-weird, gentle, calm, confident Christians that Jesus loves blessing and sending into this world to proclaim Christ. And there you are as a non-weirdo, trying your best, calm Christian, speaking to your neighbors about Christ, speaking to your family members for the past 15 years about the Lord Jesus, and they still think you are a strange, hypocritical, dum-dum who has no clue what is real and true in the world, okay? You know what that's like. And more and more, as we live in a post-Christian secular culture, the more and more our neighbors, quite frankly, will have no clue what we actually believe, and they will misunderstand us. And we can be as clear and nuanced and helpful and gentle and warm and welcoming and inviting as possible, but still, like Paul was, and yet still, verse 29, they will suppose something about us, assuming something about us that's not true. And when that happens, what do we do? Well, what happens is it gets worse for Paul. Verse 30 to 30, the crowd drags Paul away, and they're seeking to kill him. And then notice in verse 36, this Jewish crowd, this mob, yells, away with him. And it's only as Paul is dragged away by the Roman military tribune that he actually finds safety. Now, stop and think about the pattern here in Paul's life. Here's a Jewish man willingly sacrificing himself to serve other people in the church, which leads him to the temple. And as he's in the temple, an angry mob begins to falsely accuse him of things that he taught and actions he actually never did. And this Jewish man, as the mob tries to seek to kill him, they're screaming out to the Roman military people away with him towards death. Now, did I just describe Paul or did I just describe Jesus? Because here's the point here in the second scene. The point, verse 36, away with him, are the very same words almost verbatim that the author Luke here of Acts, author Luke of the Gospel of Luke, uses of Jesus as an angry Jewish mob says, away with him for Christ to be crucified by the Roman military. So what's the point? This is the point, Parkview. As it goes for Jesus, so it goes for Paul. So it goes for every single one of us who will seek to follow Jesus faithfully in this broken, miserable world where being misunderstood and falsely accused happens to those of us who are following Jesus. The point is that for the gospel to advance through your life, Christians must embrace and be formed by the sufferings of Christ. Paul says it in Philippians 3.10 this way, 
he says, there is the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord, verse 10, that I may know Christ in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. According to the Apostle Paul, there is no greater joy than knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and that knowing Jesus and the intimacy of knowing Jesus and the pleasure and joy of knowing Jesus, according to Paul, puts him into suffering to become like Jesus, sharing in the sufferings of Christ, not sufferings to save people from their sin. That, that is unique to the sufferings of Christ. But that in the place of suffering, that is where Jesus is. As I said before, God loves us so much, he sent his son to suffer for us, and God loves us so much, he sent his son Jesus to suffer with us. Some of us right now, our lives are on fire. And we are facing heartache and suffering, and maybe it's even coming from people in your life who are misunderstanding or treating you in a way that you shouldn't be treated, and they're misunderstanding your heart, and they're accusing you of things that you said things or did things that you actually never did. It's not based on reality, and there you are, suffering. What you need to know is that Jesus himself knows what that is like. He has been there before. Jesus knows what it's like to have people say false things about you behind your back and for you not to be able to defend yourself. Jesus knows what it's like for the public opinion of you to turn into a cesspool of ungodly rumors. He knows what it's like for people to misunderstand who you really are, your deepest passions and deepest intentions, for people to completely miss that and to treat you contrary to it. And Jesus knows what it's like to try your best to live for the glory of God, but yet people still mistreat you and treat you the exact opposite of what you deserve. Parkview, just as Jesus went into suffering and then resurrection glory, so also if you embrace Jesus, you embrace the very same pattern of his life. Christoformity, formed into Christ, that you enter into sufferings with him like Paul, the very same pattern. That is what Paul says. Didn't you, it's amazing, I hope you noticed this. Paul say this in his testimony in the next scene but I want to mention it right now, that as Jesus reveals himself to Paul, he says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Well, Paul, in the first century, wasn't literally, he actually literally didn't find Jesus of Nazareth and say, hey, I'm going to you know, kill you and persecute you, right? He was persecuting the church. But what we see is that Jesus so identifies with his people's suffering that their suffering is in some mysterious way his suffering. It pains Jesus when you go through pain, do you know that? That right now, the misery that you are experiencing, Jesus is not standing aloof from it, that, but he, he is getting involved in it. When you suffer, Jesus does not jump out of your life, but he join, joins you more deeply in your life. That's the promise of Christ when we go through suffering, especially the suffering of being falsely accused and misunderstood. Part of you need to know that the greatest joy of your life is knowing Jesus and the way that you know Jesus is through suffering. And when you go through suffering, he is right there with you. And then all of this leads to a testimony. 
Because when you meet Jesus in a mysterious way, in that crucible, in that fire of suffering, and you taste his sweetness in an unusual way, and you know this, if you've suffered, and you've suffered with Jesus, you know there's an intimacy and a joy with Jesus in the valley of suffering that you experience in a way that you don't on the mountaintop of joy and comfort. And as we go through that, that suffering, we, we have a testimony to declare to the world. That's what we see with Paul. And it's, it's a long section here. I don't have time to go into all the details, but I want you to notice there's four parts to Paul's testimony, starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. Verses 3 to 5 is part 1. He emphasizes, verse 3, that he's a Jew. And he talks about how uh, uh, the law of our fathers, and, and he was like them to this day. He persecuted even Christians. And so the first point Paul makes is that he's a super Jew. He's top of his class as a Jewish person. And yet as a Jew, part two, verses six to 11, he encounters the risen Lord. Verse six, a great light shines from heaven around me. And if you're a Jewish person listening to this, a great light in the Old Testament is when God, the Lord Almighty, would reveal himself to people. And so here's a Jewish person seeing a great light and there's a great Lord about to reveal himself to Paul. And lo and behold, surprise and shocker to any Jewish, Jew, Jewish person the person who reveals himself is, I am Jesus of Nazareth, who you are persecuting. And then he sends Paul to Damascus. So there's a surprise here. There's a Jewish Paul saying he encounters a Jewish Messiah named Jesus, who is the Lord. And he redirects Paul's life to Damascus in verses 12 to 17, part three of Paul's testimony. The well-respected Jewish Ananias, verse 12, a devout man according to law, that he's Jewish. Verse 14, he says, the God of our fathers, the Jewish father, appoints Paul to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness, Paul, for him to everyone what you've seen and heard. So it keeps unfolding. The God of the Jewish people has a plan for Paul, a Jewish man, his life, to be a witness of what he sees and heard. And this is God's plan not Paul's plan, but here's a surprising twist, uh, part four, verses 17 to 21. Jesus now recommissions Jewish Paul, but to the Gentiles. In the temple, verse 17, he sees a trance. And verse 18, Jesus says, get out of Jerusalem. They will not accept your testimony. And verse 21, Jesus says, go far away to the Gentiles. But here's what's really surprising. If you look at verse 19 to 20, as 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 Paul hears this from Jesus, he, he tries to reason with Jesus, right? He says, Lord, I mean, don't, don't you know, they, they, they know who I am. I was in the synagogue after synagogue, imprisoning Christians and, and killing them. I even affirmed, verse 20, Stephen's death, that famous Christian who died. I was the one cheering everyone on who was killing him. Wouldn't it be amazing, Jesus, as a testimony to Jewish people, that here I'm a Jewish man and you transform my life and then I'm a witness to the Jewish people. I'd be an amazing candidate for the mission and for a ministry to the Jewish people. Don't you think, Jesus? And Jesus says, I have different plans for your life, Paul. Go to the Gentiles. And that's how our Lord Jesus works. Not only does he meet us in suffering, but we might say he's also the, the Savior who surprises us. Some of us think that our life would be better and we'd have a more influential ministry and life if we had maybe a different marriage or a different sort of family upbringing or a different job or a different role or a different gift set in the church. And Jesus, don't, don't you think that if I had these things, I mean, think of the ministry I could have, Jesus, says Paul. Wouldn't this be amazing? 
And here's the Lord Jesus saying, no, 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 Paul, you don't understand. I have something totally different for you. Jesus is unfolding this great plan to bring the gospel to the nations, to the non-Jewish nations, the Gentiles. And he is going to use a Jewish man named Paul. And it's totally different and, and totally a surprise than what Paul had originally expected. And that, brothers and sisters, is what is true of our lives, is it not? It's not only that you and I will endure suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ, but also that we will have a surprise in how the Lord Jesus will use our lives in ministry and influence. Some of you here are at East Campus in Iowa City in 2023, and you that was not on your agenda when you graduated high school, right? On your agenda was, okay, Lord, here I am graduating high school. I'm going to this college. It's going to be great. And then I graduate from college, and here's my, here's my plan. Uh, for the next uh, 20 years. And, and, the Lord, and the Lord surprised you, didn't he? Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that there's, it's not a mistake that you are here this morning in this particular place, in this city, in the family that you are at, with the neighbors that you have, in the workplace that you are at. But that we serve a humble Savior and a Savior who suffers with you, but also a Savior who surprises you with the power of how he can transform your life and any person's life and send you on a new trajectory, a trajectory in a direction that you never could have expected or planned for your own life, but it is good because it is Jesus and because he is at work in your life and he is changing you and he is giving you a testimony to speak to the people around you. Yes, you may be in suffering. Yes, you may be falsely accused, but because of who Jesus is and how he identifies with us in suffering and is right there with us and how he is the surprising savior who transforms us, he can use that suffering as an opportunity like Paul to then declare his good news of his saving power to those around you. That is what Jesus is doing as we go into suffering, and that is why we celebrate communion. And I forgot my cup, so let's all pull out our cup for communion because this is why, this is why we love the Lord Jesus, that he doesn't just speak to us about who he is, but he shows us who he is through this meal. And through this meal, we don't just get to hear the gospel, we get to taste and see that Jesus is just this good, we are reminded, again, that he, he's the suffering Savior, but he's also the powerful Savior who brings us together, who unites us in the church, and in humility we serve one another, and we have communion as a representation of our unity in Christ, the one who suffered for us in his death on the cross, bearing our sin and judgment that we receive by faith. So on the night that he was...